Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. There is darkness in the world, tucked in between breathtaking beauty and unmistakable joy. There are long shadows that seem to go on forever. There are seasons of gray that we think will never end. There are days of darkness that actually make our heart physically hurt. But in a room as dark as pitch, the smallest spark, the faintest light, changes everything. One ray will eradicate. One match will illuminate. Suddenly, all the focus is on the light. The light always wins. The people living in the darkness have seen a great light. We are children of light. We are called to go into the dark places, but we don't need to go in with our floodlights. One candle is all we need. People will be drawn to it for clarity, for heat, for comfort. Don't be afraid of the darkness. It's where our lights are best seen. God said, let light shine out of the darkness. We are the light of the world. Let it shine before others that they may see our Father in heaven. I am the light of the world. Greetings, everyone. A very good morning to all of you. Last weekend, we began our new summer series titled, I Am. And throughout this summer, we are going to look at the I Am sayings of Jesus from the Gospel of John. I want to welcome all those watching us from one of our regionals, those of you in the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary, our regionals in Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. Also want to welcome our online audience, both from Calgary and all around the world. So glad you could join us today on this beautiful summer day. As I introduced the series last weekend, I shared with you the significance of the word I am. In the book of Exodus, as God revealed his identity, he used the word I am, and he said that that would be his covenant name by which he will be known for all generations. You come to the Gospel of John, Jesus very deliberately uses that very name, and he said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. And I believe that is one of the clearest and boldest claim for divinity you will see in the four Gospels. Jesus is not just a prophet or an angelic messenger or a moral teacher. He is divine, God in flesh. And starting this week, we're going to look at the seven I am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The I am statement that I want to focus today is foundational and powerful, and I believe it will set the stage for all the other I am sayings to come. I want to share with you what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. Growing up in India when I was a child, we were used to frequent power outages. 
So when the sun sets and it is dark and all of a sudden the power goes off without any warning, everything is dark in the house and everything comes to a standstill. You cannot do any activity. You're still until someone fumbles their way to find a flashlight. Even inside your own home, it is hard to walk in the dark. You will inevitably bump into a furniture or step on the dog. So it is inconceivable to live in a world of perpetual darkness. And yet, from a spiritual standpoint, we know that much of the world is in darkness, and people are floundering their way as they try to navigate through life. There was a recent news item on the life of pop icon Michael Jackson, because it was the fifth anniversary of his death. And I just realized Michael Jackson and I have something in common. I wish I can say it's our ability to dance or moonwalk, but that won't be true. But this is what we do have in common. We share the same birthday, August 29th. And thankfully, the similarity ends there. <laughs> Time magazine, in a lead article on Michael Jackson's life, said this. The tragedy of Michael Jackson's death at age 50, reportedly from cardiac arrest, pales in comparison to the tragedy of his life. To understand all that Jackson had and lost requires wiping away three decades of plastic surgeries that deformed him, erratic behavior that made his name synonymous with the warping powers of fame, and a 2005 trial for se sexually abusing a child that even though he was spared of any finding of wrongdoing, made him a pariah to all but the most brainwashed of fans. So this is a person who lived for the most part in the spotlight, starting age five, in show business, adored by millions, people literally worshipping him, trampling over one another in order to get a glimpse of their deity. On the outside, Jackson was a glamorous celebrity, dazzling on stage, the king of pop, but as you take a closer look on the inside, it's empty, desolate, and impoverished. Dissatisfied with who he was, Jackson lived a dualistic life. And when he died at just the age of 50, he looked like a frail old man hiding beneath costumes and cosmetics. That is a good picture of the world we live in. On the outside, it all looks nice and glamorous and sparkly. But as you take a closer look on the inside, it's pitch dark, completely black. The biblical worldview says there is a kingdom of light that belongs to God, and there is a kingdom of darkness that belongs to Satan and his evil forces. By default, we are part of the kingdom of darkness, until the light of God shines in our heart. Darkness and light are antithetical. All through the Bible, you will see a contrast between these two characteristics. Light symbolizes all that is good because God is its source. And darkness symbolizes all that is evil because it is a kingdom that is in opposition to the ways of God. The very first miracle that God performed as he created this world was to bring forth light. 
You go to Genesis chapter 1, you see the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. In the midst of all this chaos, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's an immediate sense of anticipation that something was going to happen. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light from darkness. That's how the Bible begins. Now go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, to see how it ends. In the penultimate chapter of the book of Revelation, you see the mention of the new Jerusalem, the city that represents our hope of heaven. And in this city, there will be no sun or moon because the glory of God will illuminate the city. And the description of new Jerusalem comes right after the white throne judgment where those who rebelled against God's kingdom are designated to a place of everlasting darkness. The Bible culminates with the same theme with which it started, separation of light and darkness. So this is the framework of the Bible. The entire story of the Bible fits into this framework. And that is why what Jesus said is so significant, this I am statement that we're going to look today. I'm going to ask all of us to stand up as we read this text. John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Shall we pause for a word of prayer? Father, in the stillness of this moment, our mind goes back to creation, to Genesis chapter 1, where there was darkness and chaos and void, and you spoke light into existence. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you will do that today, in our midst, that through the truth of your word, your light will shine in this place, that every heart will be covered by your light, and as a result of that darkness will flee. Come and minister to us in the power of your spirit. We commit this service from the beginning to the end into your hands. May we sense your divine leading. For we ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you may be seated. If you look at the context of John chapter 8, the timing of this claim makes the statement all the more significant. In John chapter 8, you see that it was the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was observed to remember Israel's deliverance from Egypt and how God took care of them through the wilderness. God journeyed with His people all through the wilderness, through a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. So in a barren desert, when everything was dark at night, God was their light, guiding them through. And in order to commemorate this, the Jews had a popular ceremony during this Feast of Tabernacles. It's called the illumination of the temple. 
after sunset, when everything was dark, they would light four huge candle stands that were about 75 feet tall. And the blaze from this light was so bright that it would illuminate the whole temple area and pierce through the darkness. So picture this beautiful blaze of fire leaping towards the sky, the golden lampstands that are 75 feet tall. The temple was on a hill above the rest of the city. So the entire city could see this spectacular sight. This was a time they didn't have stampede fireworks, so this was a pretty big deal. So in that very place where that lighting ceremony takes place, Jesus stands beneath those candles and announces that he is not just the light of Jerusalem, but the light of the whole world. What did Jesus mean by that statement? Darkness in our physical world is the absence of light. Darkness in a spiritual world is the absence of God. So we live in a world that is disconnected from God, that has turned its back on Him. The diagnosis of the Bible is pretty serious. The world is not just lacking a little bit of light. It's pitch black in darkness. The people are not just short-sighted. They are blind. They are not just sick, but they are dead in their sin. In order to truly understand the good news, you first need to come to terms with the bad news of human condition. In the midst of this despair, there is hope. Jesus is the light of the world, and He illumines the world of all those who receive Him into their life. There's a website called Experience Project. And it describes itself as a place where people can anonymously share their life experiences. As of January 2014, the website has had over 36 million visitors. So visitors to the website are asked to share their thoughts about their personal life experiences on a whole range of topics. On one post, the readers were asked to respond to this statement. I prefer darkness over light. A young woman going by the screen name Beyond Repair offered this sobering response. Listen to me. I prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the light, all things have a chance to be revealed. Darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you cannot see what is coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be because then you're free from what you wear and can be what you want. The darkness is bliss. Wow. In the person's own admission, Darkness is a place where we lose ourselves and our ability to see. Don't ever be deluded into thinking that darkness is bliss. Far from it. 
Not being able to see is a severe handicap. And only Jesus can rip open that blindfold in our eyes and give us the gift of sight. In the light of Jesus, we are finally able to see our need for God and finally able to see our true condition, our lostness. This teaching that Jesus is the light of the world is sandwiched between two stories in the Gospel of John. The story of the woman caught in adultery and the story of the healing of a man born blind. If you picture it, it's like a juicy hamburger with a patty in the middle, the teaching right between two stories of life transformation. Well, that hamburger reminds us of lunch and the soccer game to follow. So who is cheering for Germany? Oh, it's a big cheer. Any Argentinian fans here? Oh, there's passion in this place. I better go back to preaching. Two stories of life transformation, both signifying how Jesus removes the darkness in our life. And for the sake of time, we will focus on the story of the woman caught in adultery. The passage that I'll be reading now should have a footnote in your Bible. It says, early manuscripts do not have John chapter 7, verse 53 to 811. While no one doubts the validity of the story, there seems to be a lack of agreement on where it belongs. The Gospel of John, or should it be in the Synoptic Gospels? So there's a lack of agreement on that. But the story itself is powerful and very much in line with the character of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible. Let me read to you John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the women still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The remarkable power of the gospel is seen in its ability to change lives. The gospel is not a mere empty claim. It is dynamite. 
It is powerful and compelling. A life that is heading in the wrong direction, certainly pitted for a great fall, is not just rescued, but redeemed and transformed to become a shining example for the whole world. That's what the gospel can do. So here in this passage, we find that Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, and all of a sudden, there was a great commotion. The scribes and Pharisees bring a woman who was caught red-handed in the very act of adultery. Adultery, as you know, does not just happen overnight. Rather, it's a long, sad road And the journey to adultery begins long before the act itself. Maybe this woman had an unhappy marriage. And she meets this man who seemed to be so understanding, showing her love and concern which she never received from her spouse. That, in fact, is the recipe for almost all adulteries. That innocent therapeutic relationship slowly crosses the boundaries before she knew, she had crossed the line. And the worst part was, the affair was no longer a closely guarded secret. So some suspicious eyes decide to investigate and play the role of a sleuth. They conduct a secret raid in the bedroom. Can you imagine this? Witnesses hiding behind the closet so they could say, we were eyewitnesses of the steaming romance. The self-righteous men caught the couple in the act. The guy is not held accountable, even though the law is pretty clear that both the man and the woman have to face death penalty. So where is the man? Someone said it takes two to tango. But the man goes scot-free, and the woman faces the wrath of the religious leaders. She scarcely had time to cover her naked body before they march her through the narrow streets and they humiliate her beyond description. Anthropologists call some cultures as honor-shame culture. In honor-shame culture, what others think about you is more important than anything else held as the most valuable thing, the opinion of other people, and you live for those opinions. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine a person is riding a bicycle, and he has an accident, skids, and falls. In honor-shame culture, the immediate instinctive reaction is to look around to see who saw the accident. And then the person pretends that everything is all right, gets up, And after a short distance, examines to see if there's any damage to the bike and what kind of bruise he has. Because the person is so anxious about what others think and the embarrassment of falling off a bike, then being concerned about the bruise and the damage to the bike itself. I may sound crazy to you, but it's true. I've done that many times myself. (laughs) The Middle Eastern culture that Jesus lived was an honor-shame culture, very similar to what I described, where the opinion of others matters most. 
So that's what makes this incident all the more embarrassing. Public disgrace is the worst thing that can happen to an individual. Can you think of anything more humiliating, more shameful than being caught in adultery? That secretive act done behind closed doors has all of a sudden become the talk of the town. The woman is now being made as public spectacle in front of the entire city. Her misdeeds had been discovered. Can you actually feel, feel that sense of horrendous shame that was engulfing her heart? Can you see the fear in her as she stood before Jesus? Her palms were sweating. Her skin is pale. Tears streaming down her cheeks. Her body shaking violently. Without doubt, this was the darkest moment in her life. Many people were brought to Jesus to be healed. This is the only time someone is brought to Jesus to be killed. And all of this happened not because the scribes and Pharisees were concerned about adultery or about the women, but the purpose was to trap Jesus. The woman was just a pawn so she's not on trial. It's Jesus who's on trial. So the intention of the Pharisees was to discredit Jesus. So they raised this question. The law of Moses tells us that such women need to be stoned. Jesus, what do you have to say about it? And here is the dilemma. If Jesus said, yes, go ahead and do what the law of Moses says, then he will lose his reputation among the people as someone who loved the unlovable. And if he were to say, no, you cannot stone her, then he would be guilty of breaking the law of Moses. So this was a catch-22 situation. The woman herself had no escape route, no exit, no way of denying her, this accusation. Because in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of the people around her, she was a condemned sinner. The self-righteous men wanted an answer from Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, completely ignored the questions and was doodling on the ground. He's calm, composed, and steady while there's a frenzy surrounding him. A lot of people have speculated on, on what Jesus was writing on the ground with his fingers. What is striking to note that is that God wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets with his finger. So as Jesus is here being questioned about the law of Moses, he is telling in a very symbolic way, I am the one who wrote the law with my fingers in the first place. The accusers were clamoring for attention and kept questioning and Jesus' response was very simple. Whoever has not committed any sin, be the first to throw the stone. Talk about gagging someone. Whoever has not committed any sin, go ahead and perform the stoning. What? That was a response they didn't expect. It came like a lightning bolt. 
The word that Jesus used is not just sin, but whoever did not want to sin. So if you have never sinned or never even wanted to sin, go ahead and stone. Arthur Philip Yancey says the audience of Jesus' time would have divided people into two categories. Sinners like this woman and the righteous like the scribes and Pharisees. Yet Jesus in one brilliant stroke replaces those categories with two new ones. Sinners who admit and sinners who deny. In essence, Jesus was saying to them, do you think you guys are more righteous than this woman? You are no better off because your self-righteous attitude is as scandalous as this woman's affair. And Jesus' response was so convicting that it pricked the conscience of the people. And you can hear the sound of rocks falling, not on the women, but on the ground. And all of them just walked away. Until this woman was left alone with Jesus. And you take a closer look at her. The most painful moment of her failure, the darkest hour of her life, broken, crushed, shamed, her identity forever changed. From now on, she would be called an adulteress. She stands trembling before the light of the world. St. Augustine commented by saying, two things were left alone, misery and mercy. This woman, an embodiment of misery and shame, and Jesus, an embodiment of mercy. If there was anyone who had the right to condemn this woman, it was Jesus, because he was the sinless one, the one who had fulfilled the qualifications to stone. What did Jesus do? When he looked at her in the eye, she was not a hooker, not a woman of loose morals, not an adulteress. She was a daughter, valuable, precious, loved unconditionally by her heavenly Father. The woman was left alone with Jesus. I dare you to try this. Remove Jesus from that picture and bring any founder of other world religion into that scenario. What would be the status of this woman, her fate? Can you picture her standing before Muhammad? I'll use the verse from the Quran, Surah 24, 3. The women and the man guilty of adultery or fornication flog each of them with a hundred stripes. Let not compassion move you in their case in a matter prescribed by Allah. If you believe in Allah on the last day and let a party of the believers witness their punishment. Let not compassion move you and flog the victims in front of others publicly because as people see the severity of the punishment, they will refrain from the crime themselves. Really? Really? 
you can only control people so much using fear. And many of the autocratic Islamic nations are recognizing that. Can you picture this woman standing before Hindu gurus? I grew up in a Hindu family, so I know this. They will not even want to come close to a woman like this in fear of defilement. A sinful woman had no business in that esteemed company. Can you picture her standing before the Buddha? According to the Buddhist understanding of karma, in this world, nothing happens to a person that he does not, for some reason or other, deserve. So all that the Buddha would say to this woman is, you deserved it. Serves you right. It's only Jesus, only Jesus can look at her and say these words. Women, where are they? Where are your accusers? The woman with a heart filled with gratitude says, No one, Lord. All the accusers are gone. And Jesus looks at her and says, Neither do I condemn you. The accusers have been silenced. When we come to Jesus and see him as the light of the world, for the first time, you will get a glimpse of yourself. You will see yourself as filthy, soiled, fallen way short of God's holy standards. And there's an accuser whom the Bible calls as Satan who points his finger at us in condemnation. After that life that you lived, you cannot pretend that you are a child of God. God will never accept someone like you. Do you think that your sin that you committed can be forgiven that so easily? Not in your imagination. You will never be able to change. You are no good, of no use to anybody. Those are not the words of Jesus. They are the words of the enemy. Unlike the conviction of the Holy Spirit... Satan's condemnation brings no repentance, just shame and regret. Because his one aim is to steal and to kill and to destroy. Find this passage in Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. For the accuser has been thrown down to earth, the one who accused our brothers and sisters before our God day and night. This voice in heaven is resounding with joy and announces in a loud voice that Satan, the accuser, has been hurled down. The fall of the devil described in this passage in Revelation happened at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. As Jesus was being enthroned, a restraining order was put on Satan, and his power has been restricted. And not just that, the accuser was hurled down, never to be allowed in the presence of God, never to make another condemning accusation of God's children in his presence. 
And that is why the Bible emphatically says there is no condemnation to all those who are in Christ Jesus. It is Jesus who has the final word. He rises to our defense. He takes the role of a priest. And if you are downcast today because of the condemning voice of the enemy, I have good news. The accuser has been silenced, gagged, cast down, trampled, defeated, and he has no power over us. Jesus is the light of the world, and he conquers the forces of darkness. Pastor Craig Groeschel, in one of his sermons, talks about this woman caught in adultery encountering Jesus, and he says, at that moment when she came in touch with Jesus, Jesus was not just the light of the world, he became the light of her world. Jesus lightens up our personal world and removes our personal darkness. Do you know what is the greatest miracle of all? It's when the light of Jesus shines into the heart of an individual. That is the greatest miracle. For that very moment, we receive a new citizenship. We've been transferred forever from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light to serve the living God. Can anything be more powerful than that? The turning of water into wine, cleansing of lepers, feeding the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, walking on water and defying gravity, raising the dead, all of these together cannot be compared with this miracle of new life when Jesus shines his light in this woeful, sinful heart of us and gives us the ability to see. And that's why the hymn writer penned these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Jesus told the women, go and leave your life of sin. See, Jesus did not condone or overlook her life of sin. Now he says to her, don't live in sin anymore. Not because you fear stoning, but because you have had an encounter with God. And he has rescued you by his grace. And you belong to a different kingdom. A kingdom that dispels darkness. The good news of the gospel is, along with the forgiveness of sins, we receive a quality of life that overcomes the power of sin. And that's what Jesus meant when he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Never. Remember, it is light that conquers darkness and not the other way around. In a few moments from now, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. I want to apply the truth that you've heard today and take it deep to your heart. The gospel addresses not just the problem of our guilt, 
without shame. Without doubt, this woman caught in adultery faced the most embarrassing moment of her life, her darkest, her reputation tarnished, her identity changed. But Jesus not just forgave her sin, he brought her dignity back when he silenced all her accusers. Many of us battle with shame. You may have come to faith in Christ, but still you struggle with that sense of condemnation because of your past failures. Shame can go right deep into our identity and affect the way we see ourselves. Sometimes we are ashamed of the things that we have done. And sometimes we are ashamed of things others have done to us. The memories of things that happened years ago, of trauma, abuse, can seem so fresh that even with the passing of time, it feels like it happened yesterday. And you battle because of that. The good news of the gospel is Jesus not only forgives our sins, but he takes away the darkness of our shame. We know that at the cross, a sin exchange took place. Our sins were placed on Jesus, and we receive his righteousness. That's the sin exchange. But do you know that at the cross, a shame exchange took place as well. Jesus was shamed on the cross. He was stripped of all his clothes and he hung naked. They spat on his face and mocked him. They reviled him with insulting words. He bore the brunt of shame. Not his shame, our shame. It was our shame that was laid on him. And this is the shame exchange. We give those feelings of shame to Jesus, lay it at the foot of the cross, and in turn we receive his glory and affirmation and love. Psalm 34, 5 says, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. If you fix your eyes anywhere else, there's no hope for you. You will struggle with feelings of guilt and shame. But if you can look to Jesus, the light of the world, he will radiate you with his light and take away the darkness from your life. He will shine on you because he claims himself to be the light of the world and for everyone who receive him into their life. Has that shame exchange taken place in your life? Some of you battling with shame. And it's time to trade that for the glory of God. Father, we want to thank you for the truth of your word that truly liberates us and sets us free. 
We believe today with all our hearts that there is no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. For you are our refuge, our fortress, our shield. And we cover ourselves in you. Thank you that those who look to you are radiant and their faces are never covered with shame. So we believe that today from the depth of our heart and receive that shame exchange in our life. That you will take away those dark feelings of embarrassment and pain and replace them, Lord, with your glory and your power and your grace. And we pray that the condemning voice of the enemy will once and for all be silenced because of the truth of your word that liberates us. So come now and set us free that as we participate in this meal, we will be able to celebrate the joy and the victory that we have in Jesus. For we ask this in your powerful name. Amen. Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. As you go forth, people will see your light and glorify Father in heaven. So that is my benediction for all of us. As people who have experienced the light of the world, as people who have experienced his forgiveness and healing and grace, go forth and shine his light that the world around you will come to know who he is and give glory to the only true God, our Father in heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, there are prayer partners available who will be happy to pray with you. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 